think that you can fully and absolutely get wrapped up in something and enjoy it, but at the end of it or in the midst of it, mm. you are conscious also of saying, Lord, thank you for this. It is rare that I have someone come into the counseling room and I have to tell them something that they didn't know. Welcome to 1A, a ministry of First Presbyterian Church, episode 15. We're continuing our spring series covering emotions. This week you'll hear Dr. Thomas and me wrap up our discussion on love. I'm Josh Squires, the Minister of Counseling and Congregational Care here at First Press. You're listening to 1A, a podcast designed to take a brief but in-depth look at counseling issues from a pastoral perspective. If this is your first time listening, we appreciate you checking us out. We hope this ministry is a blessing to you and those around you. For more information, you can check us out at our website, which is firstprescolumbia.org forward slash 1A. That's firstprescolumbia.org forward slash 1A. You can find all our episodes there, as well as links on how to subscribe. If this is a ministry that you enjoy, then we appreciate if you would subscribe using the application of your choice. You can use iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Sermon Audio. While you're there, leave us some comments. As we increase the number of reviews and comments, it becomes easier for others to find our podcast. Is it possible to love a thing too much? Especially as Christians with renewed hearts and natures, does that preclude us from having hearts that chase after things it shouldn't or in ways that it shouldn't? You'll hear us wrestle with this question along with whether or not a Christian's love for God remains the same throughout their life. And finally, a glimpse into my game plan in the counseling room when people are overwhelmed with emotion. We're glad you're taking the time to join us and hope you'll tell others about us as well. Now, let's get to this week's discussion. Welcome back to 1A. Last week, Dr. Thomas, we talked about the quality of love. We really used the four loves from C.S. Lewis to try and define uh, what the Bible means when it talks about love. So I thought this week we might actually talk about the quantity of love instead of the quality of love. And my question really here is, is it possible for a New Testament believer to love a thing too much? First of all, sorry for my voice. I picked up the dreaded lurgy somewhere. Um, Derek's grinding it out for us, for our listeners. Y- yes, I mean, the answer is obviously yes. One can love something other than or someone other than God too much. But but the question is clever because it, it does need to be nuanced in that obviously what you're trying to get at is idolatry. And Calvin's oft-cited um, statement in book one of the Institutes that man's mind is a perpetual factory of idols. But we were also created for pleasure. Um, Screwtip says in one of his letters to one of his underlings, the enemy, which is God in this case, Mm. um, made sure that they were created, his creatures were created for pleasure. And and I think he says something like, you know, they're all hedonists at heart. Mm. But we were created for pleasure. You know, when I was converted, let me get at this from a, a personal anecdotal um, way and and I grew up with a passion for classical music mm. and and still have that 
passion. Too, too long a story, but I mean, passion bordering on obsession mm. with classical music. And my grandfather, who died when I was five, left me all his gramophone records. Um, we're talking about long playing records. And then when I was converted at 18, uh, after a little while, I, I was mentored by this guy, uh, super guy. Um, but he told me in no uncertain terms that my love for classical music was an idol and I needed to get rid of all my records. Ouch. Which so I did. And I, and the next day I took him to a store and sold them all for like five bucks. Mm. Now I don't regret, I, I regretted it a lot uh, afterwards, but I don't regret the intent. Right. The heart of it. Right. That if this is what spirituality meant and if this is the trajectory of godliness, then, then so be it. I, I would, you know, I need to be ready to die, but I, I do regret the folly of the advice. I mean, I mean, the better advice, if there was idolatry involved and, and there was, and I'll come back to that. Yeah. You know, the better advice would have been put those away for six months and then come back to them and maybe you'll have a better understanding of their place within your life. I mean, pleasure in itself has no intrinsic moral value. It is measured. I mean, its value is measured by what it does. Mm. And whether that pleasure is purely to gratify oneself or is that pleasure in the gratification of self meant in the end to give glory to God. Mm. We were created for pleasure, mm. um, all kinds of pleasure and, and marital pleasure, sexual pleasure, mm. pleasure of friendship, pleasure in f- food, music. And I think those are meant to be enjoyed and a, a robust view of common grace, which is what I needed back then when I got rid of, I, I needed a better understanding of common grace. But there is a false view of spirituality, a distorted view of, of holiness that is negative towards pleasure of any kind. Right. I mean, you know, the, the, the oft cited remark of H.L. Mencken about Puritans, um, the, the fear that someone somewhere is happy. Right. And there is a form of Calvinism, and I've met it, and I've probably exuded it to some degree, that that the, the best parameter of holiness and, and maturity is, you know, the guy who looks kind of solemn and, you know, is always praying, or yeah. at least gives the impression of always praying, which can often just be a pharisaical um, thing. I, I think that what we need to ask is, what are these pleasures being employed for? You know, are they to glorify God? Do, do I, in this pleasure, return and say, thank you, Lord, mm-hmm. for Brussels sprouts? Right? I've never said that in my life, no. but, but maybe I should, you know. It's not going to happen. It's not, no, I don't think so. But, but you know what I mean? If, if, I, I think that you can fully and absolutely get wrapped up in something and enjoy it as a God-given pleasure. But but at the end of it or in the midst of it, maybe in the midst of it, mm. you are conscious also of saying, Lord, thank you 
for this, whatever it is, and thank you for enabling me to enjoy it. Right. Now, you know, there are scriptures that will talk about us being created as a new creation once we're converted. Thinking here of something like Second Corinthians 5, uh, I think verse 21, um, if he's found in Christ, he's a new creation. If that's true, how, how is it that a new covenant believer then, that their hearts can lust after or desire something more than God himself? I, I think that... What you're getting at, Josh, is upon conversion, upon regeneration, and regeneration is total, just as depravity is total. So the effects of regeneration are total. There's total renewal in the sense that the mind, the affections, the will, everything about us is renewed. The dominion of sin is broken, but the power of it is not. Right. That's the problem. So that... And again, I'm, I'm in an Augustinian understanding here of Romans 7, the latter part of it, that the good that I would, I do not, the evil that I would not, that I find I do, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death. So mm-hmm. I, I live out my Christian life as somebody who is renewed mm-hmm. in Christ, a new creation, but the good that I would, I do not, the evil that I would not, that I find I do. So I'm in this battle. I'm in this, I'm in this constant warfare of knowing who my master is, but often denying mm-hmm. that truth. The flesh lusting against the spirit. Galatians. The spirit against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other. Um, and, and so learning and constantly relearning what Paul's um constant refrain is, and Romans 6 would, would sort of epitomize that, that we are to remember who we are in Christ, mm. that we've been baptized into his death and resurrection, and that we live now a new life. Mm. The problem is that we often live as though that's not true. Right. So, you know, Luther is said to have thrown in pots at the door of his study when he thought Satan was knocking at the door asking was Luther there and he would throw the inkpot and say no Luther doesn't live here a man in Christ lives here now and but but that is the problem that that when Satan says jump you know we say how far whereas what we ought to say is you are not my master anymore I don't have to listen to you right anymore and go away and I think I see this in the counseling room when people assume that their hearts, whatever they love, that it's God-given. So if they love football and football is the center of their identity, then that's a God-given thing because they're new creation in Christ. And so they have a misunderstanding of what it means to be new creation and what that new creation does to their hearts. Well, of course, I mean, that's just... I mean, that sounds like just another example of antinomianism, to be, to be blunt about it. Yes. Um, that, you, that you justify any and every um, aspiration of your supposed renewed heart. Now, football, and here I speak with tongue-in-cheek, but football in and of itself is morally neutral. 
I would suggest. I think <laughs> I'm on dangerous ground here, but but I think God made us for pleasure, and sport yeah. is one of those pleasures. Now, listen, I won't get into the whole business of competitive sport and whether that's a Christian thing or a non-Christian thing. Right. You know, Paul certainly will employ the analogy to run the race and to get involved in a game of boxing and right. and beat the air and and so on and. Uh, so he uses he certainly uses athletic Olympian sporting examples yeah. as as um, as motivations for living the Christian life. So, so sport in and of itself is is neither here nor there. It's, I think it's morally neutral. It's how it's how we enjoy it. Can I go to a sports game and and in the midst of it say, Lord, thank you for football? Right. I don't think I've ever had that experience, but but. <laughs> I, I know those who do yeah. and who get a great deal of enjoyment in it and, and are expressive of their Christian faith right. in it. Yeah. And to that extent, I think that's a healthier um, approach to sport rather than the, the sort of knee-jerk reaction that's worldly. And if you're a mature Christian, you just don't get involved in it. Right. You know, the guy in your counseling room sounded to me like as though that wasn't where he was coming from. No. And he was saying, if I like something, then it is good. Yes. Period. No, yeah. ma no matter how I use it or, or, or whether I use it selfishly or whether I use it in consideration with others. I mean, if a guy goes to sport five days out of every week, but he's married and he has 16 children at home, there's something wrong with that picture. Right. Right. Well, and sport here is probably one of the more neutral examples. People People do this all the time if it's, I want a new house, but they can't afford it. But it's been placed in my heart that I should live somewhere different. Or, I mean, even I think I need a new spouse. And my heart is telling me that this person that I work with is the person that God really meant for me to be with. And because I'm new creation, I can trust my heart and what my heart tells me. Yeah, and a part of that, I suspect, is, you know, post Enlightenment post Schleimacher. Isn't he a race car driver? No, <laughs> Schleimacher, who's been dead for a hundred years, is actually alive and well, I think, but he certainly, he certainly has, um, a measure of, I live by my feelings rather than I live by my mind. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I do think that here something Something of a, I mean, since you're in the counseling room here, mm. something of a faculty psychology has to be considered. You know, how, how is something right or wrong? Mm. Well, the answer to that is it is written. God in the scriptures, God in his word declares whether something is right and wrong. So I have to assess using, using intellectual mm -hmm. categories. I have to, I have to think about it. It's something that's objective mm -hmm. rather than subjective. Whereas, you know, a lot of folk live and, and Christians too live by their feelings. And, mm -hmm. and the priority in terms of a faculty psychology is that something is right or wrong because I feel it mm -hmm. to be right or wrong. And I, I mean, it's more, more complicated than that. I mean, part of that is a postmodern um, view of of life in, right. in, in general, that there is no objective truth. There's only a truth for me and truth as I experience it. And who are you, Josh, to tell me 
whether this is right or wrong. So I'm, I'm leaving. <laughs> Taking my football and yeah. I'm going home. Slam door. <laughs> All right. Recently, we went through the book of Job, um, and I was reading through Job just chapter by chapter to orient myself, and I was struck. Actually, it's Job 7, and I, I forget which verse. I'll have to go back and see. But Job makes this declaration that his eyes will never see good again. He's in that place of hopelessness. Um, but we know from the end of Job, that's not true. He, he ends up with children and things and, and a, his, his days are long, so a, a happy life. But in the moment, he knows what it is to be overwhelmed with feeling. And, and to let his feelings be the thing that drive him rather than inform him. I, I want to be able to say to my people in the room, look, script, scripture understands this. It can empathize with you here when you feel like things will never be good unless you get what you think you need or you're just letting your emotions drive you. But the thing that really tells you what reality is, is not your feelings. They can inform you. But what determines reality is God and his word because he's the one who made it all. Right. I mean, Job, uh, I mean, Job is an interesting, interesting example in the sense that, uh, you know, events can so impact us emotionally that they cloud our judgment. And I think there's a great deal of that in Job. And, you know, following those two almost tranquil and euphoric first chapters by way of Job's response, right. the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then, in chapter 2, to his wife, shall we accept good at the hands of God and not evil? He descends in chapter 3 into the very pit mm-hmm. of darkness, cursing the day he was born, wishing he had never been born, um, that the midwife had never said it's a boy, and, and so on, and that he had been stillborn, died in his mother's womb, that his mother's womb would eternally be his grave. Mm-hmm. Yes, can Christians descend there? Absolutely, they can descend there. And, you know, it's like a I always think of Job chapter 3 like a parachute, like like the life vest that's underneath mm. your seat in an aeroplane. I've never actually got down on my hands and knees and checked that there's one there, but I'm reassured <laughs> that there is one there and that maybe one day I may need it. Right. And I've never been in Job 3. I don't think I've ever experienced that. Maybe, maybe looked at it from afar mm. on one or two occasions, but mm. I've never been in Job 3 or Psalm 88. Uh, darkness is my closest friend, it ends. But it does, it does say to us that, that Christians too can be so emotionally overwhelmed that they fail to think properly, that they fail to reason properly. Biblically. Now, this really leads into the second part of this question, as as we've talked about the quantity of love, and can we love something too much? What about the quantity with which we love God? Does that stay the same from the time we're converted until the time we go to glory? No. I mean, our expression of love, our, our response to grace grows, so grow in grace grow in the experience of what grace does for you. You know, those 
seem to me to be the constant exhortations of Scripture um, to grow in love, First Corinthians 13. But it would be not dissimilar to the question, you know, did you love your wife on the day you married her? And is that love the same now, Forty, in my case, 40 years later? And, I mean, only an idiot would think that that's the same. The fact is that you grow more and more in love for others. Mm. You understand them with a greater sense of, with with a deeper sense, but you also understand yourself, Mm. how they could love you. You share experiences. And that's, I mean, it's the same true, the same is true with our relationship with God. Um, We know him more. Right. We know him better. Every we know our scriptures better. We know mm. his self-disclosure more. And is that trajectory the same day in and day out? So that every day when I wake up, I love God a little bit more than I did yesterday. No, I, you know, I think that's one of the common mistakes in, that people make in sort of pastoral assessment, that growth is always linear. Mm. It's, it's like y equals 3x plus 4 instead of y equals 3x squared plus 4x plus 2. I have no idea where we are right now. Right. The first one is a straight line and the other one is a, is a curve. Curve, okay, got right. it. Um, sort of math for five-year-olds. Well, maybe ten-year-olds. Um, and, um, you know, I think that's the reassurance, I think, in, in somebody like Peter. You know, you might read Paul and you think, yeah, Paul just grew exponentially like a rocket. Yeah. You know, launched from Cape Canaveral and up he went, <laughs> you know, to the sky. But Peter, you know, crashes back down again. Mm. I mean, I mean, just catastrophically mm. and publicly mm. and makes a big shebang of it. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm always so thankful that Peter is in the Bible. Peter, the one to whom Jesus said he would build his church upon, the whole mm. Protestant Catholic debate now notwithstanding, but Peter is the first major apostle of the church in in Acts, not, mm-hmm. not Paul. And he has this very public fall. Mm-hmm. Um, get behind me, Satan, Jesus says to him. Now, there was a question I was supposed to ask you. Mm. In counseling, how much of counseling, you know, people's pastoral responses mm-hmm. and the, the mess that people get into, how much of that is channeled and governed by inappropriate emotions rather than inappropriate thinking? Or is it a combination of both? I think proportionally, it's usually uh, inappropriate affections leading thought and actions rather than inappropriate thought. It is rare that I have someone come into the counseling room and I have to tell them something that they didn't know. That action is inappropriate or you can trust the Lord in the midst of this particular situation. Most times they know those truths, but the application of them is difficult uh, or they have some emotion that is driving them. And there have been studies that say that if you put emotions on a scale of one to ten, if you would subjectively say eight, nine, or ten on that scale, 
So you can always tell when people have come to talk to me because they're always scaling everything because I make them scale stuff. Like, on a scale of 1 to 10, how angry are you right now? 1 to 10, how joyful are you? Do you really ask that question? Yes, all the time. And Uh, generally, what sort of answers do people give? I mean, is it like 9.5 or 11? Yeah, 11s and 12s come up pretty regularly, um, especially in the midst of crisis. But usually if it's on that upper third or above, then they say what's going on is that the area of your brain that's responsible for emotions is lighting up so intensely that the area of your brain that's responsible for logic is relatively dark. So it's hard to logic yourself out of a really intense emotion at that particular time. So when someone comes into me and let's say they're a 10 on the, you know, depression scale or on the anger scale, what I try to do is walk beside them enough. Help me. Help me understand what you're going through and why you're going through what you're going through. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Just make the topography for a moment so they can talk about it and they can get to that nine or 10. And then once they get there, I try to lead them to a place where it comes down to a six or a seven. And when they can get to a six or a seven internally, all the truths that they already know, they can begin to apply to themselves. Um, so it's, it's being able to walk beside and then gently lead just to get them to the place where they can apply. How does all of that, what you just said, yeah. apply, say, in a text like, be angry and sin not? Right. I mean, that's a great text. One of the questions is, is it possible for me to get angry and sin not? I heard a pastor say one time, it is possible to be completely righteously angry I've just never seen it. And I think something similar happens to me in the room. Like it's a, there's a way to be completely righteously sad or hurt, but I don't know that I've ever seen it. Sin is always in the mix somewhere. So to the degree that I can help you look and see where your sin is involved, I'm going to help you and then we're going to mortify it. We're going to try and put our uh, hands around its throat and kill it. And then whatever's left, over, if it comes underneath the lens of scripture and is okay, then we're going to explore it and talk about, okay, what do we do with that now? How do we make that anger or that sadness or that hurt Christ-like? That's really good. You've been listening to 1A, a counseling ministry of First Presbyterian Church. We encourage you to listen to all our episodes, which you can find on our webpage, at firstprescolumbia.org forward slash 1A. That's firstprescolumbia.org forward slash 1A. You can also check us out on all your favorite podcasting applications, such as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, then subscribe. Also, don't forget to tell your friends and family about us as well. If you have comments, questions, or issues you'd like us to wrestle with, contact us. You can reach us at our email address, which is 1A at firstprescolumbia.org. That's 1A at firstpresscolumbia.org or via our Twitter account, which is at 1A Podcast. That's at 1A Podcast. Or by phone, 803-281-1795. 803-281-1795. For Dr. Thomas, I'm Josh Squires. We look forward to seeing you next week. Until then, thanks for listening, and God bless. <laughs>